He has defended some of Britain's most notorious underworld figures, including police and road rage killer Kenneth Noy, Cray Twins enforcer Freddie Foreman, and John Palmer, the ruthless villain dubbed Goldfinger, who was shot dead, seemingly in a professional hit, a few years after he was released from prison for a major fraud. His other past clients have included suspects in the £26 million Brinksmat gold bullion robbery in 1983 and the highly audacious Millennium Dome raid. For this special Male Plus True Crime podcast, I'm joined by the man labelled the Mr Big of criminal briefs, defence solicitor Henry Milner, who has spent decades representing big-name criminals and in doing so has become a scourge of the police. He has written a new book about his high-profile old cases. That Brinks Matt's robbery was, was huge news. I was not in journalism at that stage, 1983, late 83, and that was your breakthrough case. It was headline news, wasn't it? It was a sensational robbery. They got away with 7,000 bars packed into cardboard boxes. Those boxes will weigh each in the region of 100 weight. £26 million worth or more. And you had quite a few clients come out of that case. Yes. Well, the original trial was the robbery trial, which had two defendants, and and one was convicted and one acquitted. And that led on to Kenneth Noy when he was arrested, charged with the murder of a policeman on his land. The prosecution said police saw comings and goings by both Noy and Reader and suspected the gold was being moved out in small parcels. They followed couriers to exchange points in the city of London and onto a bullion dealers near Bristol. Kenneth Noy emerged as someone of, of great interest to the Met in the aftermath of the uh, Brinks map uh, robbery. And there was a surveillance operation, wasn't there, on, on Kenneth Noy's house. And very tragically, a police officer, John Fordham, was stabbed to death, stabbed ten times. The man in charge of the investigation, Detective Chief Superintendent Brian Boyce, decided whatever was going on in there should not be allowed to continue and obtained search warrants for the house and grounds. The court was told that on the day of the murder, January 26th, two detectives dressed in camouflage kit watched the noise home from a hideout in nearby woods owned by Anglican priests. At 6.15 in the evening, they were ordered to enter the grounds. 25 minutes later, one of the officers, Detective Constable Fordham, was found lying on the ground eight yards from the gate, dying from ten stab wounds. It was a very controversial case, wasn't it? Uh, and a lot of emotions as well. A, man, a police officer had lost his life. The police had uh, set up a camp on the outside of uh, Noy's land in Kent, a 20-acre estate, and they were keeping watch and they saw some cars coming and going. And unfortunately, in, in a terrible, horrible winter's night in January 1985, they sent in onto the land two uh, camouflaged undercover police officers with the balaclavas over their head to keep watch what was going on in the home. And they, they watched from a copse about 50 yards from the home. But Noy had a couple of dogs and they started barking. And so he went out the house to his car where he picked up a knife he'd been cleaning the battery with and 
calling out to his dog, so he wasn't approaching the woods without making his presence known. And then in, with his torch, he saw the face of the undercover officer with a mask on it. One of them had run off, and the other one, unfortunately, sadly, four of them had remained behind, which was much to the surprise of the officer who had run off. And then there was a terrible fight, and the uh, prosecution uh, pathologist uh, gave evidence to the effect that he thought that the um, undercover officer must have struck the first punch because he would have been not able to do so after being stabbed. And so it gave the impression that the fight was started by the undercover officer with a view to escape because it would blow the operation if he was caught and had to reveal he was a police officer. It also transpired that amongst his clothing, which we examined at a later stage, there was no warrant card. In other words, that he went onto Noy's land without being able to prove to Noy he was a police officer if he was confronted. Police claimed they'd taken it off him in the ambulance, which was proved to be rubbish because the uh, paramedic, as part of the defence case, to say that he wouldn't let anyone near the body, which they're trying to save Mr Fordham's life in the ambulance. There's no question of the police officer coming over and removing his car from his pocket for safety. The, the jury during the trial were taken to Mr Noy's home on a winter's night, and with the agreement of the judge, we were allowed to point a torch at uh, one of Noy's friends who had been allowed to dress up in camouflage and wearing a balaclava to show the jury what it would look like at night. It looked like a man's arrived from outer space if he was shining a torch at a man's head. His case was he was acting in self-defense and he had no alternative. And, and he kept saying, uh, well, what would you have done in my shoes? And so uh, he was eventually acquitted. And I'm not proposing to put Noy on trial again for that case because he's been acquitted and the jury's had its say, but he did stab John Fordham ten times. That's a, that's a lot of time stab someone in self-defence. There, there were ten wounds. There was not uh, some were, were scratches. Right. There was one or two serious stab injuries, but not the others. But it was a terrible struggle, as was admitted. There was no witness to the struggle, and when the police heard the noise, they came bursting through the gates in their cars mm. and found noise standing over Mr Fordham, who had crawled towards the gate, shouting at him, tell me who you are. Did you expect him to be acquitted? I imagine the emotions would have been running really high, you know, politically, as well as in the justice system and in the Metropolitan Police about this case. Looking back, I think it was in a balance. I didn't expect him definitely to be convicted, unlike the press, who I think thought that he was going to be sentenced to 30 years. I thought there was quite a good defence case, particularly in the light of the photograph of the man who dressed up as the deceased and the fact that the policeman did not have his warrant card on him, which I think was crucial to the case. It made it clear to the jury, in my view, that the undercover officer must have been told, do not get caught at all costs because you'll blow the operation. I think they had about 25 arrest warrants ready to use all over the country. And uh, if the officer had to show out as being a police officer to Noy, then that operation would have been crippled. After he was acquitted, was Noy released from custody or was he kept inside pending further proceedings in relation to Brink's map? No, he wasn't released. He, he was awaiting trial for a conspiracy to handle the gold and the VAT charge that went with it. So he remained in custody until the second trial with others. So there wouldn't have been any celebration uh, 
well, maybe a, a celebration no. privately well, for him in his cell. No, he, he knew even if he was acquitted, he wouldn't be getting bail. In fact, I think we applied for bail afterwards, but it wasn't granted, which was no real surprise. Mm. And uh, he was kept in custody, I think, for a further six or eight months until the trial for conspiracy to handle the gold from the robbery. I would imagine that you know, whatever the court public opinion felt about that verdict, that within your business, that was good for your reputation, that a finely balanced case, which arguably you know, people felt would result in Noy being uh, convicted, he'd been acquitted. That must have brought forward more business for you, I'd imagine. There were actually quite a number of uh, Brinks-Matt robbery cases. There's the robbery case initially, then there was the uh, Kenneth and Noy murder trial, and then there were several handling cases after that of other people who uh, were alleged to have been involved in the movement of the gold, mm-hmm. etc. So there was about four or five trials in all over a period of about two or three years. Before the John Fordham death, Noy was not a household name, but he did become a household name then, didn't he? And certainly for the media. And I, I'd imagine that he might have regarded himself as a marked man for the police from there on. Yes, he had an unusual, very unusual surname. It wasn't Smith or Jones, just his throat sticks in people's minds. He was a fairly sort of low-level villain, shall we say. He had some history. I say he was a villain. He was a good businessman. Businessman, but he had, I think, hadn't he been caught smuggling a gun into the UK from the US and stuff? Yeah, it was low-level well, low stuff. Yes, he pleaded guilty to... Smuggling a gun in a book to use at his shooting club, and he he wasn't sent to prison for it actually. Right. Okay. But anyway, he became a name, and he was subsequently jailed over the handling of the Brinks Matt loot, so to speak. And he served a long sentence, didn't he? Yes, he had to serve. I think he served nine years. He came back on to the radar, certainly the media-wise, in 1996, by which time I was a, a crime journalist, a crime correspondent at the Daily Mail. And that was in connection with the murder of Stephen Cameron, the so-called road rage murder just off the M25. This is the road junction next to the busy M25 where Stephen Cameron was stabbed to death one Sunday lunchtime in May 1996. For over two years now, police have been hunting for his killer. Within months, wasn't it, Noy's name, as a, as a prime suspect, was, was, was in the public domain. Noy left the country very quickly, and there followed an international manhunt. And it went cold, didn't it, for quite some considerable two time. Two years or something like that. A couple of years. And I have to say, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, well, should we say interesting stories were written uh, at the time about the hunt for, for Kenneth Noy some less believable than others. I remember one newspaper claiming that he had returned to the UK for 24 hours to have a a dinner at a Chinese restaurant in Kent. I, for one, did not believe that for one minute. And there are other sort of uh, false alerts uh, around the world. And he eventually turned up at Spain, which has traditionally been a favourite bolt hole for fugitives over the years. Well, it was originally a a favourite bolt hole because there was no extradition from Spain. There was no agreement with Spain for extradition. So as long as you behaved yourself there, you didn't have a problem because they couldn't extradite you. But by the time of Noy's case, there was an extradition treaty. I guess that by the time that he was caught, having represented him successfully over the alleged murder of John Ford, for which he was acquitted that it was hardly surprising that he should retain your services again in connection with the murder of Stephen Cameron. 
Well, you're right. It wasn't altogether surprising. After all, we'd lost the handling case, but uh, we won the murder case. At 22.24 hours on Friday, the 28th of February, 1998, Kenneth Noy, 51 years, of Bridge Cottage, Uplands Way, Sevenoaks, Kent, was arrested in the south of Spain for the offence of murder of Stephen Cameron on the 19th of May, 1996, at Swanley in Kent. Kent Police have been in liaison with the Crown Prosecution Service during the past few weeks, and with the assistance of Interpol, this arrest has been effected. A formal request for extradition of Kenneth Noy will be sent through diplomatic channels to the government of Spain. It's interesting, isn't it? The the way in which the police were able to secure his extradition, effectively, from Spain in connection with Stephen Cameron, that Stephen Cameron's fiance Danielle Cable, was taken to Spain to a restaurant by Kent police and asked to identify a suspect for her fiance's murder in that restaurant. That's yes, the sort they, of I thing. They had little alternative because they needed the identification to give them a good case for extradition. I mean, as a defence lawyer, was that something which you accepted was was acceptable, so to speak? Well, you couldn't ask him to go on an ID parade in Spain. You had to arrest him first, and they couldn't really arrest him with the assistance of the uh, Spanish police until she'd made a positive identification. Hmm. So I do not think they actually had any real alternative. It was very brave of her to go because obviously it was very distressing for her. Of course, and she witnessed something no one should have to witness. Often when I'm covering big court cases the defence will make an argument, oh, there has been an abusive process in the gathering of the evidence in this case or the way in which well, the police have gone about I, it. But that was never a consideration. If you've mm. got no other evidence, you've got to have reasonable grounds to, to uh, suspect the crime's been committed. So to arrest mm. somebody, to put them on ID parade, you've got to have some evidence. Mm. I think in England it would have been very different. They would have arrested him and then placed him on an ID parade. So presumably, following his arrest in Spain, you went over there to to represent him. Uh, I did. I went to the. He was taken to a terrible prison in Cadiz, right down in the south, and then he was transferred to Madrid. And there was an extradition hearing in in Madrid, during which the three judges were amusingly smoking throughout. Noy can't be shown for legal reasons. His extradition is expected to be formally announced tomorrow. His defence team will have three days to lodge one final appeal, and that could delay the case in Spain for several months. And uh, his case was that he would never get a fair trial in England because of his uh, infamy from the earlier matters, mm. uh, but he was extradited. You objected to his extradition? Yes, uh, but uh, I, I wasn't optimistic. I was surprised when he was caught, I have to say, because of the fact he'd been on a run for so long, well, in my opinion anyway, that he'd had the wherewithal and the caution, so we say, to create a new life for himself and not come up on the radar of the police or, as even been suggested, the security services were involved in the hunt for him. And I, I was surprised. I just thought he would probably cut himself off completely. But it would seem, and I remember reporting this at the time, he did keep in contact with people back in the UK, and, and that may have been how eventually he was caught. Most people who go missing are eventually found, some earlier, some later, for one reason or another. It's well, very hard to think of people who've just disappeared off the face of the earth completely, never to be caught. In relation to the Stephen Cameron case, it's interesting, there was no dispute that it was him, was it? 
he was on the way to a Sunday lunchtime to a pub for, uh, for a couple of drinks with some mates. On the Swanley interchange, he had to stop at the lights, and there was a flashing of lights behind him. His case was he got out because he thought that he recognised the lady in the car from the nightclub. Uh, went over there. When he realised it was mistaken, he didn't recognise her. Mr Cameron also got out the vehicle, and when the noise case was that he said, oh, sorry, I made a mistake, and then Stephen Cameron said to him, you will be sorry, and a fight started. And uh, Cameron, of course, was uh, fitter, younger, taller and stronger than Noy, and uh, Noy was getting the worst of the fight and feared for his very life. And uh, he had a lock knife on him, and he, he, he stabbed him with it. He thought he stabbed him once, in self-defense, but it turned out he stabbed him twice. Then he got in his vehicle and drove off because he feared that, that his name could never get a fair hearing in England, and he disappeared. So, in fact, frankly, I think, as I said in my book, it may well have been, I'm not saying there's a certainty, that his name wasn't known if he was an unknown figure at that time. He might have been uh, acquitted of murder and convicted of manslaughter. Uh, it wasn't to be, and he received a 16-year sentence. He had to serve 16 years. In fact, he served, I think, nearly 20 before he was released. Playing devil's advocate, the fact he stabbed that man to death, having previously stabbed John Fordham to death, you know, was that mentioned? You know? Yes. It was, it was. Okay. Because there was no sense in, in not mentioning it, because everybody, as I said before, Noy was an unusual name, and uh, to my mind, there was no doubt that uh, one of the jurors at least would, would know the name and mention it to the others. So yeah. there's no secret about it. There's no point in trying to pretend it. it hadn't happened because, as I said, his name wasn't Smith. And so, unfortunately, the jury had it in their mind when they retired. Can I ask you this? I just wonder whether you've ever contemplated this, Henry. Uh, you have a job to do as a defence lawyer. But had Noy been convicted, rightly or wrongly, of John Forden's murder back in the 80s, whether Stephen Cameron would still be alive today. Is that something which you've ever contemplated or thought about or reflected on or even people raised with you? You know, that such is life. Some people might get arrested for a robbery and get sentenced to 10 years, and had they not been arrested, they would have been on an uh, even bigger robbery or got involved in drugs and sentenced to 25 years. But uh, that's fate. Uh, uh, and uh, it was a tragedy. Both cases were a tragedy. Uh, no denying that, of course. You know, there's a very lovely quote I put at the beginning of my book. I'll read out to you now from a famous, uh, legendary American trial lawyer. I defend my clients against legal guilt. Moral judgments I leave to the majestic vengeance of God. You know, you can't say, oh, if he gets off, there, somebody else might get harmed in the future. This is the position. You're a defense lawyer. You're not a, a moralist. You're dealing with evidence. Uh, if your client's acquitted, if you've done your best, that's your job. If he's convicted, again, that's, if you've done your best, that's your job. Millions of words have been written about Noy over the years, but you've clearly had a close professional relationship with him. So what, in your opinion, and I stress your opinion, is he like as a person? He's very affable, very polite, doesn't swear keeps all his appointments, always paid his bills on time, trusted me, and that's it. No problems. He was never a difficult client. He's uh, intelligent, a good businessman, 
a good judge of character. And um, I think during his uh, prison sentence, he was no problem to anybody in prison, kept himself to himself. Uh, I don't think he was ever put on report. He came out of prison in 2019. Do you think he's learned his lesson now and will go straight? He's not a young man now. He's uh, in his 70s now. And in any event, the two uh, murder cases are not anything to do with pre-planned killings or anything like that. These are spur-of-the-moment incidents. So, you know, now he's an elderly man and the prison authorities kept him in four years longer than than the minimum tariff. And he leads a quiet life. Probably doesn't need you to tell him, but did you? So, look, you know, don't carry a knife around with you. I don't need to tell him anything like that. He's he's not a fool. He's an intelligent man. Kenneth Ball is basically a businessman. I mean, I have to say, with a violent uh, tendency, uh, obviously. Well, I don't, it's not for me to comment, but uh, I can only talk about his two cases. Can we move on to John Palmer, Goldfinger, as he became dubbed? I mean, he was caught up in the Brinks Matt affair as well. He was acquitted, wasn't he? Yeah, he wasn't charged with robbery. He had jewellery shops in uh, in Birmingham and in Bristol, and he was a good businessman, came from a very poor background, a hard worker. And in his home in Bristol, he had a gold smelter in the back garden and was also smelting, quite openly, small amounts of gold for business purposes. But, of course, when they followed the trail of the movement of gold, they saw bars of gold, or they thought there would be bars of gold, being smelted by him. and so. After Noy was arrested for the murder of Fordham, the police tried to arrest everybody else who uh, they believed might have been involved. When they smashed down Palmer's door, he was on holiday in Tenerife. And uh, he went on the news there saying, for example, I know nothing about this Matt's Brink robbery. He even got the order of the words the wrong way around, (laughs) which, which we actually used at the trial. And I don't know Kenneth Noy, which he didn't. And they couldn't extradite him. But in the meantime, because everybody thought he was so rich over there, he got this name Goldfinger, and he got involved in building timeshares using borrowed money from one to build the other because everybody thought he was good for the money, which he paid he paid for it, of course, but he, he, he hadn't made a fortune or any real money out of the Brinksmat smelting. But then he had to leave Tenerife, and he, he flew to Brazil. They stuck him in prison for two days, and he decided that... Uh, the view from Brixton Prison was probably better than the view from uh, a Brazilian prison. And he came back voluntarily. He was charged and uh, kept in custody at Brixton for nine months. And the case against him wasn't particularly strong. He was a very affable, friendly sort of fellow, a nice country manner. And um, they couldn't prove that he knew the gold he was smelting came from Brink's mat. And he was acquitted. He was subsequently and this happened during my career he was convicted in relation to timeshare fraud he was convicted and sentenced to eight years he defended himself at that trial actually eventually although we acted for his uh, his wife but he was uh, convicted and, and sentenced uh, to eight years and, and he served four years and i think it's fair to speculate that he had created quite a few enemies and uh, he was murdered wasn't he five he was uh, shot five in his ago. back garden very sadly, uh, years after his release. And no one's been uh, arrested for it yet. 
Officers have described this as a wide-reaching investigation because of Mr Palmer's lifestyle and his previous involvement with the criminal world. In 2001, he was convicted for timeshare fraud with at least 16,000 victims. And at the time of his death, he was due to stand trial in Spain for real estate fraud. Thousands of people could have had a motive for his murder. That was an extraordinary case because it, the police originally thought that uh, he'd had a heart attack or something, whereas his no, chest they, had been pummeled. They thought that he'd had an operation on his stomach and mm. they thought originally that the stitches had split and he died from that. And it was only about two or three days later that they discovered that actually he'd been shot six times. Another notorious figure who you've represented in the past, one Freddie Foreman. Students of true crime will know that he was an enforcer for the craze, a legendary figure, if that's the right phrase to use, in the underworld. He had been acquitted of murders, hadn't he, in the past. He was convicted over the disposal of uh, Jack the Hack McVitie from Barightley. That was uh, before my time, but I acted for him in... Uh... In the 80s, there was a very, there was a six million pound cash robbery of the Security Express in the city. And somebody who he knew well, Ronnie Knight, who I think was at one time married to Barbara Windsor, was arrested and stood trial with others and was sentenced to 22 years. Meanwhile, Foreman had left England for Spain again before the time of extradition and they, they couldn't get him back. They thought he was involved. Eventually, years later, in 1989, he was virtually kidnapped on the streets of southern Spain, Marbella, by the Spanish police who uh, wanted him out, and uh, no doubt under pressure from the British police, and he was put on a plane in his, his beef clothes and given a drink on the plane, which must have been drugged because he woke up at uh, Heathrow Airport. And then he was uh, put in prison to await his trial charged with the uh, robbery itself and as an alternative handling £350,000 which they'd found in uh, an account of his. Uh, his mentor made some confession in a conversation with the head of the Guardia Civil in Spain which they used as evidence that he could show he knew Ronnie Knight and they could also show the £350,000 in the account and that he'd fled to Spain and didn't come back to England so that was the case and uh, we submitted uh, that there was no case on the handling and it was either robbery or nothing because the money in his account wasn't used to hand over to anybody else. So either he was a robber or nothing. Uh, and uh, the judge didn't like that. And the case went ahead on both counts and uh, he was acquitted of the robbery and given nine years for, which is an enormous amount, for handling £350,000. Mm. And frankly, had it not been Freddie Foreman, I think he would have probably got maybe four years for that. You represented him in, I wouldn't say in his heyday as a villain, shall we say, but he was certainly active, obviously. Was he someone who had a, an aura about him? You know, he was... He was extremely polite, and as long as you were straight with him, he was straight with you. I never had the slightest problem with him. He let me choose. Uh, I had John Matthew uh, and, and Ronald Thwaites, two very famous barristers, acting for him. He was prosecuted by Michael Worsley, who was a very senior prosecutor. There was no complaints afterwards. There was no complaints during the preparation. He let you get on with it. And... Uh, 
he uh, was an intelligent man. He is an intelligent man. Writes very nicely, very small writing. You can hardly read it, but uh, makes his contribution. No problem at all. I don't think it's in your book. Forgive me if I've got it wrong, but I do believe that you did represent for a while some of the men accused of the murder of Stephen Lawrence, case close to my heart. Can you talk us through your involvement in that? I'll tell you, I, w- I went to the police station when they were arrested. It was, I won't say just another murder case, because it, well, I suppose all murder cases are just another murder case. But from what I saw of it, and, and I was only, I wasn't hands-on throughout because the case was thrown out, so, you know, the original trial, I was uh, when the judge stopped the trial. But I can only talk about the first few days at the police station, the two or three days, and the police, as far as I can tell, doing their very best to conduct strong interviews. There was no, I didn't see any favours whatsoever. I was very surprised when there was an inquiry afterwards that maybe the police hadn't done a proper job or done the best they could. They they should have made arrests earlier. As a matter of their their tactics, I don't know their reasoning. David Norris, who's now being convicted of Stephen's murder, his dad, Clifford Norris, was a notorious figure in the underworld. He he wasn't one of your clients. Well, I, I think he was earlier on, but again, I don't put any store by that allegation. I saw nothing at the police station to indicate anything but the police trying to do their best. The names you sort of reel off there, Freddie Foreman, Palmer, Noy, these are people of a different generation to the individuals who often end up at the Old Bailey uh, these days in connection with gangland activities. And, well, and the, the, the drugs culture's taken over now, and the loyalty's gone, I think, to a large extent. The rewards are so high that the picture's completely changed. Um, there's a lot of informants, I would imagine, around now, much more than there used to be. And the stakes are very high because if you get arrested for 10 kilos of cocaine or conspiracy for large amounts, you can easily get 25 years. Mm. So they're playing for high stakes, and it's a very, very different uh, scenario than it used to be. One thing which hasn't changed, and that is the greed of criminals uh, to make easy money. You were involved in representing people involved in the Millennium Dome robbery, a case I reported on extensively back in the day. I mean, it was a ludicrous plot, wasn't it? Which was never going to come off. The gang broke through the perimeter fence of the complex in a JCB digger, drove it right up to the side of the dome itself and smashed through a section of wall made of glass and metal. They got inside, reached the Millennium Jewels exhibit where they dumped the digger and exploded smoke bombs to create confusion as they ran into the vault. I presume it's the excitement, the adrenaline, which fueled that conspiracy. I'm always amazed that people uh, go for such large targets because the heat will always be on. And unless it's cash, you've got an enormous problem getting rid of it. I don't know how you you go to sell a a diamond worth £200 million. You can't put it in in an auction. Uh, What are you going to do? Try and strike a deal with the insurance company to buy it back with that, which will inevitably lead to your capture. No guns were used on that uh, robbery. They had uh, smoke bombs and sledgehammers and nail guns to break open the thick glass case where the, the diamond was being kept at the Millennium Dome. But the police suspect them two earlier operations that there was going to happen and the escape would be by river. And they had 200 uh, undercover officers uh, on duty that day. But of course, and also, most importantly, the real diamond wasn't there. 
they'd put in a, a, a replica. You were representing people on the periphery of that plot. Yes, I was actually. One was meant to have been uh, sent in to reconnoitre the place uh, a few times, and the case against him was uh, the judge threw it out the halfway stage. And the other one, they suggested his land was being used in Kent to store the vehicles to be used on the robbery. But on the very day of the trial, they dropped the charge. He'd been in custody for five months originally, eventually got bail. And then on the day of the trial, they dropped the charge. Others contested it on the basis they were guilty of theft, which means that no violence was to be used, but were convicted of the robbery, and one was convicted of just the theft. So they got large sentences. And uh, even if they got away with it, they would have got away with a replica, which has been worthless. More recently, there's been another high-profile theft, Hatton Garden, which involved a a so-called dad's army of people thought were retired criminals, including one Brian Reader, who, who was linked to the John Fordham case. These were very, very old robbers, weren't they? Figures, you know, whose files at the, the Flying Squad offices at New Scotland Yard presumably were, were getting pretty dusty, and, and they came back for the big one. Just I think the logic must have been that it was a burglary, not a robbery. Yeah. And that you could only get a maximum of 10 years, and if you plead guilty, you could only get a maximum of seven years because they've yeah. got to give you a a 30% discount. Mm -hmm. So they were playing for large rewards, but the stakes, remarkably, sentencing-wise, were not so high. I'm just interested in your your perspective on the psychology, having defended people like this for decades, what motivates them to continue in a life of crime when they maybe arguably should have been just sort of uh, easing out their days, having done time in prison already? I would call it the loving of the game. It's a hobby. They may need the money as well, but it's almost a hobby. Uh, Danger has its attractions. And when it goes wrong, it's a fair cop? Well, it was a fair cop here. took their time. It was a fair cop. But they knew that they were not going to get 15 or 20 years because there was no weapons involved and there was no hold-up. I just wondered... You know, say decades of defending some notorious figures, some probably not so notorious figures, uh, but nevertheless may have committed even worse offences than some of your big name former clients. Are there some people who you would not defend just because of their infamy or because of the seriousness of what they are accused of? I think now, uh, being a quite old myself, I, I would uh, avoid it. I've been quite lucky. I've never had some truly horrific trials, I suppose. I've had more of the sort of professional robbery. I haven't had the household murders or the terrible cases with young children or elderly people. I've just never had it, and uh, I'm very happy that I haven't, to be honest. I'm Stephen Wright. And you've been listening to a Mail Plus true crime interview with defence solicitor Henry Milner, whose new book, No Lawyers in Heaven, A Life Defending Serious Crime, is published by Biteback 